right, let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 13. Parables with power, the precious pearl. And we are continuing our series on parables. Parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. They are not fairy tales. <laughs> that makes it sound like they're just uh, something that's uh, spun. No, they're powerful truths. And they are a loving Savior's perspective on life in the future. Now, where have we been? We saw the superb seed and the shoddy soil that just didn't bring forth any fruit. And Jesus explained why it would be that some people just simply don't get it and won't ever get it. It's because the soil has a problem. Then we saw about the treacherous tares and the wild weeds that were sown among the true seeds. Sad, but it's true. There are hypocrites in the church. And then last week, we observed the strange mystery of the monstrous mustard seed and the bad baker who hid the leaven in the bed. Jesus was trying to warn us about the last days, not frighten us, just forewarn us that it's not going to get better. It's really going to get worse. But thank God we don't have to fear because we have Jesus Christ. And one of these days, he's going to come back and make it all right. Now today, we're going to talk about the precious pearl, something so amazing, something so wonderful, it rivals what we talked about at the end of last week's sermon, God's tremendous treasure, Israel. Folks, keep your eyes on Jerusalem. Every time you read a headline about Israel or Jerusalem, read it, because uh, that's where the action is. Everything comes back to Israel. All you have to do is read the Old Testament and Compare that with many chapters of the New Testament, especially Revelation. And so today, the precious pearl. Let's all bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, I was encouraged and blessed. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, for just, uh, just coming over me and in me and on me this week as I prepared. And I pray somehow, God, you will convey that. May my cup run over. To these, my precious brothers and sisters, and to those that are here that I may not know, Lord, would you speak to us, please, in Christ's name, amen. All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 13, if you would, verses 45 and 46, just two verses, but let's read them together. Out of the King James Version, if you don't have that, just look at your, your electronic Bible there, you can find it, or you can look here on the PowerPoint. Ready to begin. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, this is a very short parable, similar to last week when it talked about the tremendous treasure, which is Israel, that God uh, had been hid for so long in the dirt, but even though it's hid, he's coming back for his treasure. Now, these uh, parables, uh, Jesus said, are mysteries or secrets, as he said here in Matthew 13, mysteries, secrets. Now, when you read a, a mystery novel or perhaps you watch a mystery movie, my wife and I, we love mysteries. We just, that's one of our favorite things. And when you read uh, or watch a mystery, what happens is they decimate to you facts one bit at a time. You don't get the whole thing. You just... You get a little bit of evidence here, a little bit of evidence here, a little bit of evidence here, until finally the mystery is revealed. 
And that's kind of what a spiritual mystery is. It's a sacred secret. Now, in this case, he's going to tell us a story about a pearl. Now, remember, the reason for parables is to create a little bit of intrigue, a little bit of interest, uh, hunger on the part of believers, and it's a method of teaching. Rather than just straight teaching, it's kind of a way to uh, allegorically connect things, kind of little mental hooks for people to hang truth on. It is uh, also a way to disguise the truth for those that are lazy. If you are spiritually lazy, you're not going to get any of this. But if you're initiated, you're eager, you want to put two and two together, and if you're willing to compare Scripture with Scripture, and that's the great thing about the parables, you've got to be versant, or at least you've got to be willing to study, because you've got to gather things from all the way in the Old Testament, you've got to gather it from all over, and then all of a sudden the mystery just comes alive. And the great thing about it is, honestly, the more you study it, the more light becomes. I mean, you can spend weeks on these, these couple of verses. Now, what is the pearl that Jesus is speaking about here, this merchant man who is looking for a pearl? Now, the typical uh, interpretation is this, that it is, uh, the merchant man is a, uh, is a lost sinner, um, that is looking for Jesus Christ. He's on a search for God. Sometimes we see signs that says, uh, what you're searching for is Jesus. Well, the truth is the answer is Jesus, but the other part of that is a wrong statement because nobody searches for Jesus. And so when we're looking at this concept, this, uh, this thought about what the pearl is, then it really doesn't make sense. Because here's what it says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 11, it says, there is none that seeketh after God. There is none that seeketh after God. The fact is we don't really seek God. And so when you look at this uh, verse here, though a sinner should seek God and though he is the answer, the fact is that interpretation, although it's, you could go that way, I don't think it really, I think it kind of breaks down at a certain point. Another uh, interpretation of that is this, that um, the sinner finds Christ, sells all that he has, as the merchant man did, sells all that he has, and then buys this beautiful pearl. Jesus is the pearl. And you perhaps have read or heard poems about Jesus being the pearl, or we've sung songs that Jesus is the pearl. Again, Jesus is definitely the pearl. He is worth everything, and He is priceless, for sure. The only problem is, that with that interpretation is, as sinners, we don't have any money. <laughs> we are bankrupt. I mean, we don't have any goodness to buy Jesus. So, what's happening here? I read this week that Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, his total net worth now is more than 49 countries of the world, $150 billion. Now, to us, that's, I mean, $150 is, you know, having $150 be fun for us, but $150 billion, do you realize how much that is? I read a little, uh, I looked it up on the internet, I said, how much would it take to spend all that money? I mean, how long would it, what would you have to do? And I read that you'd have to spend $9 million a day for 50 years to get rid of $150 billion. 
Now that's just, just spending the money. That's not if you had it in a bank account, was it getting any interest? Basically, if you had it in any kind of interest bearing account, you couldn't, you couldn't even spend it. You could not buy enough things to spend all your money. And yet with all that money he has, he has not enough money to buy one penny of God's goodness. The fact is, and I, he needs to be saved just like I needs to be saved. We are all bankrupt sinners. And so the interpretation of seeing the goodly pearl as one who is a, a sinner seeking Christ who is the pearl, again, he is a pearl, but I think it breaks down. We cannot uh, buy any morals. We can buy a law. We can influence a law, but we can't buy morals. Now, what then is the pearl of great price? And here's what I believe the pearl of great price is. And as we go through, I think you'll see it is a beautiful picture of the church, Jesus's bride. He has, he is the merchant man and he has purchased the church with his precious blood. Now, as I was studying, reading commentary after commentary, seeking the Lord, I came across a wonderful little outline by Dr. Jerry Shirley. And I thought, man, this is good. It's excellent. And so I kept reading some more, and I read the almost exact same outline from Charles Spurgeon. So um, I want to give credit where credit is due, but I have no idea whose this was first. But, you know, that's the wonderful thing about truth is you don't have to originate it. You just have to share it. And so I'm here to share a great outline with you. Let me give it to you. Number one, how the pearl was wrought. That is how it was formed. How was it made? Notice what that says in this verse. He was seeking goodly pearls. And how is it a wonderful picture of the church? Again, I did a little bit of research about pearls, especially pearls in biblical times. In biblical times, the pearl was the most valuable of all gems. It was so valuable, the Talmud, the oral tradition of the rabbis says that pearls are beyond price so valuable that the Egyptians actually worshipped the pearl. And that came over into Roman life, which really is the setting that we're talking about here. When women wanted to show their wealth, they would actually wear pearls. You may recall in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul said, ladies, <laughs> your real beauty is an inner beauty. It's not the pearls that you braid into your hair. In ancient history, I read about one lady by the name of Lolia Paulina, similar to Pauline. She uh, was the wife of an emperor, Caligula, and he, um, at one event, she had $36 million of pearls on her. It was weave, they were weaving, uh, woven <laughs> into her hair. She had them on her ears. She had them on her nose. She had them on her rings. I mean, this lady was just a, like a big giant pearl. I mean, they were so uh, impressive. Cleopatra, it is reported, had two pearls, each worth in our dollars today, $100 million each. Pearls were very valuable. Roman emperors, when they wanted to demonstrate how much, how rich they were, how filthy rich they were maybe, they would take pearls, they would dissolve them in vinegar, pour that into a glass of wine, and then drink it just to show how incredibly rich they were. You remember Jesus when he talked about pearls. He said, when you have a truth, don't cast it before swine, because he said that would be like taking pearls, something that's the most important, and putting it before swine, which is the least. Now, how is a uh, 
pearl formed. A pearl is formed, and listen, when you take a, something like a little grain of sand or even a little bit of food, I would read, something sharp, something impure, it embeds itself in the mother of the pearl. Now, most pearls come from oysters, but they can come from clams, any mollusk I actually uh, read. And here's what happens. The, uh, the oyster uh, secretes a little substance known as nacre, which actually is just a, a form of, of calcium. And it, it covers that little piece of that, that jagged, uh, cutting uh, little thing, uh, whatever that Im impediment is, with thousands and thousands of layers of this little substance. It takes about five years to form even a small pearl, and many of the most beautiful pearls will take 20 years. Only about one um, uh, oyster in 10,000 actually, in the natural, actually get a pearl. And of those one in 10,000, they said a pearl that uh, has the right shape and size and colorable, it's just a fraction. And so really, to find a pearl... It is super rare, a natural pearl, one that is beautiful. It's just so rare. Now, here's what this is teaching. So Jesus is on this boat. He's pulled out a little bit from shore. He's looking at all the people. He's telling this story and this story. Some people are scratching their heads and going, I don't get any of this. The disciples are going, this is great. And others who are in their minds are remembering Old Testament scriptures. They're getting this. They're just saying, this is amazing. Jesus was speaking of the fact that he had something that was an irritation that was actually becoming something beautiful by all these layers. And so how does this happen? God takes grains of dirt, dirt. God takes dirt. Man is made from the dirt of the earth. He takes the sharp edges and once we are placed into God, He beautifully covers it with thousands of layers of His grace. And that's the way the church of God has come together. What is a church? A church is a jewel collection of a bunch of dirt that became pearls by the grace of God and became His precious gems. That's the way we've become. The pearl owns its existence to the fact that we are covered by the grace of God. God took that which it was cut for and gave it His grace. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10 says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. You look at me today, you say, boy, he's a great man. I am what I am by the grace of God. You are a great person. You are whatever kind of person. I will say this. It is because the grace of God. God has just put layers and layers and layers of grace on this old piece of dirt. That's what he did, and that's what he made in his church. It says, his grace which was bestowed upon me, covering me. Now, pearls are often very deep in the ocean. His church also. The people, his bride, came from the depths of sin. But bless God, they came from the depths of sin, but they are going to the great heights. And that's what the pearl is. Isaiah 51 and verse 1 says, look to the rock. The great prophet said, you ought to look to the rock from whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. 
<laughs> the Bible says you better never forget where you came from. You came from a pit. <laughs> Anytime we're going to think we're a little bit good or we think we're a little bit highfalutin, the Bible says we came, each one of us, from a pit. And God dug us out of a pit. God just took it and said, you're a piece of dirt, and I dug you out of that pit. And that's what the prophet said. Don't ever get proud, Israel. God wants us to remember the pit we came from. I think the pearl is especially appropriate figure for the church because it is a gem that cannot be improved by man. It's the only gem. You can take a diamond and cut it and cut it and cut it, and the more man messes with it, the nicer it becomes, not a pearl. In fact, the more that a man messes with a pearl, the worse it gets. If you try to cut a pearl, it's nothing. It just shatters. And the fact is, the church is something that has been given by God. And when man puts his hand on it, it just messes it up. God gives, gave us the concept of the church. And for the last 2,000 years, it's never... You know, we are doing the same thing that the saints of God were doing 2,000 years ago. It always amazes me about the beauty of a church. I mean, we can come, we sing songs, we quote scripture, we pray together, we fellowship, we, uh, we go out and evangelize, we do the work of the church. And for 20 centuries, we've been doing the same thing. We join with saints of all the ages. Mankind has never improved this pearl. In fact, when man kind tries to improve it. They say, oh, we're going to leave off this. It gets worse. Or when mankind wants to add this, it gets worse. You can't improve what God made. And that's the great thing about church, folks. We are, we are here doing what Jesus told us to do. It is a pearl. The pearl was wrought by God. Now, the pearl was not only wrought, but number two, the pearl was sought. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of God excuse me, if heaven is like unto a merchant man, seeking goodly pearls, seeking the merchant man. In the Greek, that is the word emporos, which we get our term emporium. It's a wholesaler. So this wholesaler goes around diligently to buy and then to sell to somebody who would retail. Now, the incredible extent to which people would go in those days for acquiring pearls was absolutely just amazing. Now, the best pearls came from the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf as we know it today. Other um, good pearls came from the Indian Ocean and others came from the Mediterranean, but the best pearls came from the Red Sea. It took great effort. Many people actually died in gaining them. Basically, here's what they would do. They would take a little uh, skiff, a little boat. They would row out. They didn't have scuba gear, of course. They would then tie rocks to their body. They would tie rocks around them. They would then just kind of flop off the side of that boat. They would take one, before they did that, they'd take one big giant breath of air. And then they would descend down 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, sometimes even uh, further down. They would get down to the bottom in the muck. And down there with this one big breath, getting down as fast as you can, so you'd have a maximum amount of time to search around in the mud for these uh, oysters, hoping that they could stay down there long enough to get one of these oysters. And they would then uh, take off the rocks there, float back up to the top, hoping their lungs wouldn't burst because they stayed down too long or because they go too deep. 
I mean to tell you, finding a, a pearl in those days, I mean, they would search for days and weeks and sometimes months to get even one pearl of maybe even a questionable quality. But to get one that is a precious quality, it's unbelievable. Now, in this story, the merchant man wasn't one of those divers. But the point is that the divers had to do that, and this merchant man himself did so much. He did so much to seek this uh, beautiful pearl that he loved so much. Now, wonder of wonders, Jesus sought us. Jesus loves us. Now, I'll tell you one thing, I don't see why Jesus loves us at all. My poor wife yesterday, I came home, I worked here at church for about four hours on the outside. I did mowing and cutting, and we did raking, and we did this and that. When I came home, I smelled like sweat combined with, uh, with the carbon monoxide and oil and gas and who knows what else. And I gave her a big hug, and I said, I, I know, I'm sorry, honey. But, and she goes, yeah, you need to take a bath. You need to take a shower. But you know what? She loves me. I don't know why she would love such a stinky guy. And when I look at God, and I see that he loves the church, and by the way, all of you are stinky too. As pretty as you are, you're just as stinky as I am. And uh, that's what God looks at his bride, and he says, I love you. Even in the morning when your breath stinks, I love you. He loves the bride, and he, he loves each of us. God loves his church. Now, I know why I love God. I know why I love Jesus. He gave me peace. He gives me hope. He gives me a future. He gives me purpose for living. I know why I love him, but I can't see one reason why he would love me. Why would he want me? I don't know. But look what, for me, look at one of the great Old Testament prophecies about how he loved his people, Psalm 45. You read Psalm 45, and then you come to the last half, and it is a prophetical um, um, love note to his royal bride, God loving his people, whether it be Israel or whether it be the church. Look what it says in verse 11, Psalm 45, verse 11, so shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. He greatly desires our beauty. What is beautiful to God? A prayer of faith is beautiful to God. It thrills his heart. A sincere expression of worship and praise melts his soul. I was thinking a moment ago when we were singing that beautiful choruses and that one chorus that says, I lift my hands and all over the church people were lifting hands. And I got to tell you folks, God, the Bible says he inhabits the praises of his people. The word inhabits means he sits down. And I could just sense right then God was just pleased by people lifting their hands saying, God, I love you. I worship you. I need you. I surrender to you. That pleases God. He desires, he greatly desires that from his people. A simple act of obedience confirms our deep love for him. Luke chapter 19 verse 10 says, the son of man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to see, seek and to save that which was lost. And so the pearl is lost. It's buried in the muck and the mud, and he wrought it. Now he sought it. Now, how does he seek this goodly pearl? First of all, he seeks through the Spirit of God. He seeks through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the seeker. He, uh, before I preach today, I, and as I been pre praying all week long, and as I prayed last night, and spent some time in prayer this week, and early and late. 
Before I preach, before I serve the Lord, before I get up and go on each day, I say, Lord, I am dependent upon you. Holy Spirit of God, I need you. It is only God who can put his finger on a heart to convict and to convince and to call that person. And God arranges the circumstances so that lost sinners come into the contact with the gospel. It is no accident. It is the, it is the moving of the Spirit of God. You've heard Pastor Mike tell the story about how he got saved. His mother needed a ride, who went to church periodically. His mother needed a ride to church, and so she asked her long-haired, 20-something-year-old pagan son to take her to church. And he came to church, and he was under the sound of the gospel. You know who did all that? It wasn't mom. It was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did that. He brings us into contact. He is one through the Spirit. He also seeks the pearl through suffering. Perhaps the greatest spiritual tool in God's belt, tool belt, is suffering. C.S. Lewis, I think, said it best when he said, God shouts in our suffering. You know what? I hear God speak all the time. Sometimes it's a still small voice. Sometimes it's, a, it's just an impression. Sometimes it's just a thought. But I'll tell you one thing, when I'm in adversity, when I'm suffering, when I'm in pain, I mean to tell you God is shouting. He is shouting. He is just preaching to me. And sometimes a man has to be flat on his back in order to look up to God. Many a funeral I've been to. It was at the funeral that I was able to lead someone to Jesus Christ. It took a funeral for someone to begin to think about God. God uses the spirit. God uses the suffering and God uses scripture. He seeks the pearl through scripture. You know, it's an amazing thing, which I love being in this business because you can run from church. I mean, you can just decide, you know, I'm not going to go to church anymore. You can run. Go ahead. You can run from Christian parents. Go for it. You can run from pastor, but I will tell you something. Once you have heard the spirit, once you have heard the word of God, and once it has come into your soul, you can never run from it. Go ahead. Go to Antarctica. You can run from the pastor. You can run from your parents. You can run from church, but you will never run from scripture. It has been planted in your mind, and it is a divine time bomb, and it's going to go off when you least want it to. When that guy hands over a big old bottle of whiskey to you, the Holy Spirit's going to say, mm -mm. He, the Bible, wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging. He saw, whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. You can't get rid of that scripture. You can't, those are time bombs. That's what I love about the word of God. Your kids can't run from the Bible. They can run from God, they can run from church, they can run from you, they can run from, but they can't run from truth. Truth is a, is a, is a beautiful uh, spirit worm, a mind worm. You know, it just gets inside of there and just bores a hole in there, and it stays. You can't get rid of it. And that's what God uses. Thank God, the Holy Spirit, we're told in John 17, brings to remembrance. That's why it's important to have your children in Sunday school. Put them in church. Get them in the nursery. We have a nursery there where they sing Bible songs to them. I mean, they go to toddlers, and they teach them the Bible. I mean, most, and I don't mean to be critical here, but most churches are just daycares. Folks, get them in. Those two-year-olds are in there holding their Bible, and those teachers are up there. 
Why, we've had some of our men in there teaching those little two-year-olds, you know. Bless God, you know, you ought to love God and obey your parents. That little two-year-old's going, okay, all right. And uh, bless God, get them in a place like that because you know what? It's in their mind. It's in there. And that's what the Holy Spirit uses. He seeks. He has sought us. He wrought a beautiful work from a cutting, from a ugly little piece of sand, a piece of dirt. He covered us with the layers of his grace. And then he sought us. He not only wrought us and sought us, but thank God, he bought us. Look at verse 46, who when he had found one pearl of great price, I mean, this is one of those rare, 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 rare pearls. Who knows how long it had been in an oyster. It had been there for years, covered by this beautiful substance. And when he had found that one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The merchantman sold all that he had. I'm sure his friends were like, what are you doing? I mean, this guy went on a fire sale. He sold his house. He sold his uh, mules and he sold his cattle and he sold his sheep and he sold his, all his clothes. He sold his furniture. He sold everything he had. He sold everything. His friends were going, what in the world are you doing? He said, I'm not going to tell you, but I'm telling you, it's good. He found a pearl of rarest price. And the Bible says he bought it. He bought it. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that for though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that through his poverty might be rich. Think of the price that Jesus paid so that we could have eternal life. Think of the price. He came to a manger so that you and I might go to a mansion. Each year we portray at Easter season the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These actors, these musicians, these incredible singers, and all the people that work behind them, it's just amazing. We hear so many great reports And I'm grateful that our church is willing to get behind and do something like this. But I must admit, it's always a challenge. I think for all of us to have to watch it. I can't stand it, frankly. It always drives me crazy. But at the same time, I know it's needful to at least give a, like a, just a little glimpse of the pain and the agony that Jesus went through. But the truth is, we can't even display it because we have little children and it's very disturbing to them and we have others... But we have to just barely give just a sneak peek into what happens. Because I will tell you the the price that our Savior paid is the greatest price any human man has ever paid. His back torn to ribbons of flesh, laid on a splintery old cross, hands and feet nailed to that cross, and then dropped into a big hole with a thud. And this was not just a one and done pain. This was not something that just happened in that hour or two hours or three hours or nine hours there or the, or the day before, or the, the day before that. We're not talking about a few days or a few hours of pain. We're actually talking about a lifetime of pain, anticipatory pain. Look what it says in Psalm 88 and verse 15, speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ in prophecy. Here's what it says, Psalm 88 verse 15, I am afflicted 
and ready to die from my youth up. From my youth up. What a, what a life to have to live that every moment I'm thinking that I might die. Every moment I'm thinking that I might die. But here he was, not just a man, but from a youth, from a child. As a little child, he was thinking that he was going to die. A few before Sunday school here, we were on our way to class, and off in the short distance, we heard a beautiful little female voice singing. I don't know what song it was, but she was singing, walking along all by herself. It was one of the beautiful Turk art girls, and she was just singing. And I was thinking, what a picture. Here's a young lady just singing about Jesus at church, just content, secure, feeling loved. And yet all over this world, the great majority of people don't feel that. Some children go to bed at night not knowing whether they're going to be accosted by some wicked person or whether they'll die in some, at the hands of some, uh, some terrorist or whether they'll even have food in the morning or that anybody even cares about them. Think of what it must be like to every day wake up thinking that you're going to die. That's what it says about Jesus. I'm afflicted. And ready to die from my youth up. Every time in that carpenter's house, his dad, his earthly dad would say, son, pick up that nail. And every nail that Jesus picked up, he realized that someday that same nail is going to go through his hands. Every time his dad said, son, give me the hammer. He realized that that same hammer would be the hammer that would drive that nail into his hands and into his feet. And every time his father would say, son, I want you to cut this wood, he realized that there would be a cross that would be cut, and he'd be laid upon that. Or what about when he went to the temple yearly? We know that he went when he was 12, and we know that was the pattern of his life. And at least three times a year, the men would all come together, and they would sacrifice. Sacrifice. We think of it as a beautiful time of getting together. Trust me, it was brutal, ugly terrible, grotesque, gallons and basins of blood. And this little lamb would be just sliced. And that lamb would yell out a cry, and then the blood would start splurting. It would spurt all over the priest, and it would go all over everywhere, and then buckets of blood. And every time that little boy would look over there and see that blood coming from that lamb, He, in anticipation, knew that he was the lamb. That's what they were going to do to him someday. He didn't just die on the cross and feel bad for a few moments or a few hours. He had this anticipatory pain for year after year after year. And yet, why did he do that? Because he sought a goodly pearl. Every time he walked along and saw a flower, a rose, others would look at the rose and say, isn't it amazing? He would see the thorn. And while the beautiful rose was there, the thorn would remind him that someday they were going to take those same thorns and plate it into a crown and place it upon his head. Why did he do all that? Because of his great love for his church. It was his pearl. He loved the church. How much did he love the church? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, we're told how much he loved the church. First of all, he showed his love because he cleansed her. 
Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for it, that he might cleanse and he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. His love was a cleansing love, a forgiving love. You know, when you pray a sincere, Lord, would you forgive me? Do you know that he will, you will always get a yes? Always. Now, sometimes in our earthly life, we want to say yes to when our mate has offended us, and yet it might be difficult. It's hard to not have a grudge at times, but the amazing thing about God is He never has a grudge. After the, not just once we've offended Him, not just twice, but thousands and thousands of times since the time we were a child, we offended God. And yet the Bible says, the minute we say, forgive me, He said, it's done. Cleansed. Gone. Cleansed. He cleansed His bride. How much did He love the pearl? He sanctified her. It was a flourishing love. In verse 26, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify it. We may think that we're doing pretty good, but the fact is Christ will make more of us than we can ever make of ourselves. We're a pearl, but he polishes that pearl. When I give myself to him, it's amazing what my life can be because he made the most of that pearl. How much did Christ love the church? He nourished her. Verse 29, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it. A love that brings strength. Knowing Christ and having Him as our Lord and Savior, and being obedient to Him will give us the strength to face the most challenging of circumstances. He nourishes, just like a we nourish someone that's sick or someone's down. We nourish them. We feed them. We care for them. We nourish them. The Bible says that he nourished the church. He strengthens and he brings strength to our life. Thank God that he loves this pearl so much that he spends time being a caregiver, a spiritual caregiver. And then before he cherished her. How much does Jesus love his church? How much did he love the pearl? He cherished her. He valued her. I just don't feel like you value me sometimes, we think. But Jesus always values. Verse 29, no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church, his pearl. Now, it may be true, I doubt it, but it might be true if you say these words, nobody really cares about me. I don't think my husband cares about me. I don't even think my wife cares about me. I don't even think my kids care about me. I don't think my friends really care about me. I don't think my, parent, my boss really cares about me. It might be true. I don't know. But did you know that if you are part of the church, did you know that if you have been saved and placed into the church of God, did you know that you can never say, nobody cares about me? Wipe those words from your vocabulary, because I promise you, friend, Jesus loved you. He sought you, and he went down into the deepest, darkest sea, and he pulled you up because he loves that pearl. How much did Jesus love his bride? He presented her. He presented her. He held on to that love and cherished that love. It's a love that endures forever, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church. 
a beautiful pearl not having spot. All the spots are gone from this pearl, wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish. You know, it's always a strange thing if you think about it. We have a wedding, and they're always beautiful. I love weddings. I cry at every wedding. I just think it's beautiful. Love weddings. But it's always a strange thing at weddings. Because when we're at that wedding, we are initiating this life, and we're starting this great home, and we're just telling them that this is going to be a beautiful relationship. And yet at such a wonderful, joyous occasion, the preacher has the responsibility of reminding them of death. It always seems a little strange. It's hard to even say. But the pastor will say, will you love her till death? And so at their wedding day, we remind them that's probably a good chance that you're going to have to be there when your loved one dies. The truth is for each of us here that are married, there's a 50% chance you're going to be the one that's going to be there when the other dies. Will you love them until death parts? And why do we do that? Why does a pastor stand up on a wedding day, this most joyous occasion, and remind them of this very difficult moment, death? Because we are reminding this couple to take nothing for granted. Live every day as if it's the last day you'll be together. Because it just might be. Never take anything for granted. Love them. Give it your best. Because you never know what may happen tomorrow. And some may fear, maybe given their heart. And I understand that. You've been broken. You've been disappointed. You've had people just mess with your life. But I will promise you this. If you'll give your heart to Lord Jesus Christ... You will never, ever be disappointed. He said, until death do us part. And the neat thing about God is, even death doesn't part us from Jesus. Even death doesn't part us. Because the church, he said, after you've lived all these lives serving, all your life serving Jesus, guess what? You're going to come to the end, and then I'm going to present you to myself as a beautiful bride, not having spot or wrinkle. I love you in life, I love you in death, and then, bless God, I will love you through all eternity. That's the amazing thing about being part of this pearl, the pearl, the precious pearl sought by the divine merchant man. Incredible. Rejoice, friend. You are a pearl of great price. He took you, a piece of old dirty sand that cut him. And His blood, His grace covered us with thousands of layers of His mercy and grace. And He poured Himself all over us until we became His goodly pearl. And today we are His shining pearls. And I trust you are shining. I trust the world or sin hasn't left your pearl diminished today. I wonder, is there something that's gotten in there? And you've realized I've not been the pearl for Jesus I should have been. 
With this, I close. Uh, For a couple times now, a few years ago, we had beautiful brother Tom Harmon, evangelist Tom Harmon, come preach our Bible conference. And his uh, health uh, didn't allow him to come this last uh, couple years ago. We look forward to him coming again, the Lord willing. But I always remember brother Tom Harmon introducing his wife, Joyce. He said, I'd like to introduce my bride. Bride? We've been married for 50 years. (laughs) They've been married 50 years, but to him, it was like yesterday. She's my bride. She's my bride. I've had her all these years. And he said, I'd like to have her stand. She's my silver-haired fox. (laughs) Now, I'm sure his kids were there. They went, oh, dear Lord, help me, you know. But he called her his fox. Back when I was in high school, when you were foxy, that meant you were really pretty. I don't know if that's still a word or not, but, uh, or if it's a bad word now, forgive me if it is. But, but you know what? To him, she was his precious bride, a precious pearl. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.